0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England.
2: Emily Urquhart is an author and journalist with a doctorate in folklore studies from Memorial University of Newfoundland. Her latest book, Ordinary Wonder Tales, is a collection of essays exploring the way we weave fable and fairy tale into our own personal narratives to make sense of new or disturbing situations. Often deeply autobiographical, Emily's essays are meditations on, among other subjects, Family, grief, genetics and mortality that draw universal truths from the stories we tell ourselves. Before Emily joins us from her home in Kitchener, Ontario, here's a clip of Anne Wessel's narrating Ordinary Wonder Tales. The year that I turned three, I slept in a bedroom that
0: was known to be haunted. Returning to that room now, in memory, I am a bystander looking in, through an open doorway, at a young girl lying in a sleigh bed with a tall headboard. She is yellow-haired and motionless, wearing a flannel nightgown. She holds the neck of a small plush lamb in the curl of her palm. The sheets on her bed are white and a glow in the blackness of the night room. The air is chilled and still. The child has many blankets on her bed to keep her warm. She appears to be asleep. I enter the room and move closer to the child. I see her blink. She is awake, her gaze fixated on a spot overhead. This is where the inky fluid mass has materialized, seeping in from the corner of the room above where the bed has been snugged against the wall. She has not seen a stingray in her life, but when she does, 20 years from now, in the Caribbean, she will recognize something in the ocean creature, in its darkness and its size, and also in its rippled movement. The inkblot is made of air or water or maybe gas. Some might argue that it is conjured of mind or spirit, but to the small girl, it is matter it is part of the physical universe there is no urgency to its visit it bides its time as it quivers in the dark making its presence silently known but eventually as she knows it will the inky mass speaks to her in a breathy hiss it declares itself in a language that is either french or english or some other form of communication that is not linguistic.
2: It says every time,
0: Emily, go get
3: your mother.
2: Emily Urquhart, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you, Red. It's
3: just lovely to be
2: here. I guess we should start by defining our terms. Could you tell us a little bit more about the origin of the expression wonder tales and why you prefer it to something more like fairy tales or fable.
3: Wonder tale is really just another term for fairy tale. They're basically interchangeable, but uh, I prefer the term wonder tale, which I believe is is Irish in origin. Although you can also find it um, in the German language, because. The truth is there really aren't any fairies in fairy tales. (laughs) And I think what it's meant to tell you when you use the term fairy tale is that you're in the land of fairy, you're in the land of magic. And in that way, it makes sense. But as um, our language and our knowledge of of magic and wonder has progressed, um, I think wonder tale is a more sort of apt way of describing those kinds of stories of magic. So uh, that's why I chose it for my title.
2: Well, yes, as you say, they almost always contain an element of the magical or the supernatural and the first essay in your collection introduces us to when you were introduced to the supernatural at a very early age, I think you were two and living in France. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it was the year that I turned three, and
3: I lived in a small village called Flavigny-sur-Ozerain in Burgundy in France. My father um, was an artist, and he taught fine arts at the University of Waterloo in Waterloo, Ontario. And one of his colleagues owned a home in this beautiful medieval village, and he would lend it out when he wasn't using it to other artists and professors and just a real rotating cast of people. Uh, My parents were there uh, for my father's sabbatical year and I slept in a small bedroom. And in my memory, something came into my room at night. It sort of seeped in from the corners. It was a kind of an inky fluid mass and it would speak to me and it would say, Emily, go get your mother in this scary hiss. And I would run across to my parents and wake them up. And um, it happened a lot. And I ultimately was taken to the doctor in the closest village to see if I was having, you know, psychological problems at the age of two. And the doctor uh, prescribed a suppository, which didn't actually work, surprisingly (laughs) enough. (laughs) And so that was my first experience with the supernatural.
2: (laughs) And, And in the chapter, you explore the belief that maybe children between the ages of two and seven, are uniquely susceptible to the magical. But it's also something that was in your own family folklore, because your mother had a a fundamental belief in ghosts, and and your father, who's a a well-known Canadian artist, is also quite famous for supernatural paintings and so there was an openness to this belief.
3: Oh yes, yes. My mother didn't tell me no you're not seeing that. That isn't real. These things don't exist. She just told me not to be afraid. And again, my father my father reacted the same way and it is true if your family is is open to those kinds of experiences, which is what I found in um some of the research I did on this topic. When your family reinforces your uh, your beliefs, whether they are supernatural or otherwise, then children are more likely to believe in those things for longer. And with some beliefs, you know, where we come into something that may be a bit more spiritual, they will perhaps believe for, for their lifetime.
2: And as you point out, you know, we we all inherit beliefs and superstitions. So lots of us touch wood for luck or cross our fingers. But for you, actually, this became a story that was absolutely embedded in your family folklore and one that you shared with your children and then one day they asked you to recount the story in front of another mother and suddenly you found that it elicited a very different reaction and a reaction that made you feel shamed
3: yes it it was a real um eye-opening experience what happened is that i i i tell this story about my my childhood haunting sometimes it wasn't an inky mass sometimes it came in the form of a turtle named Skipper D that actually lived in our garden and that's very (laughs) silly and I make a silly voice and and my children think it's funny not scary and so they asked me to tell it in front of another child and their mother in the park one day and I did and you know I'm buoyed by my children's laughter at this the parts that they're waiting for in anticipation I, I didn't notice until far too late, (laughs) the reaction of the other mother who had turned her back towards me to create a sort of shield between me and and her son so that she could protect him from the story I was telling. And at at the same time, she was saying, you know, ghosts aren't real. This story is made up. And I realized that I had done something wrong, that I was being shamed, and that I also, obviously, I believed something that was... (sighs) scary or offensive or taboo to other people when, for me, it had just been part of our family folklore. And so I learned an interesting lesson that day. I also feel that supernatural belief is just as important as religious belief. And I think the two coexist in many ways and um, neither one should be shaming the other side.
2: (laughs) And in this essay, you explore why belief in ghosts should be held as taboo or offensive, whereas perhaps belief in the Holy Ghost is seen as a lot more acceptable. And you come to the conclusion that part of it is because these are ancient beliefs. They haven't got a, a codifying book such as a religious text and, and an organization behind them, such as the church, that gives them an armor from being seen as taboo or suspicious.
3: That's so beautifully put. I, 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 that's exactly it. And And I think what we see is that there are sanctioned ghosts, there's sanctioned supernatural beliefs and unsanctioned. And um if you if you start to, to speak too much or too loudly or too publicly about the unsanctioned supernatural beliefs, then you can can obviously run into trouble. And and in my case, I felt that I was being seen as a bit of a troublemaker, which <laughs> is really not that's not <laughs> me. <laughs> I'm not a troublemaker. I usually follow the rules. So
2: <laughs> fortunately though, your belief in the supernatural had been sparked. And this led you to attend Memorial University of Newfoundland and pursue a PhD in folklore studies. And I suppose in many ways, Fleveny was your your gateway to this?
3: I think it was. I I always say that earning my PhD in folklore was probably the least practical thing I've ever done, but it's also the best decision I've ever made. <laughs> um, I had been working as a journalist at a um, women's magazine called Chatelaine, which is a fairly well-known magazine here in Canada. And I was working as a assistant editor, but really I was just doing a lot of fact-checking, which is fine. I like fact-checking. It's interesting, but not, I, not enough. I wanted I wanted to tell stories and and I wasn't getting much opportunity to do that so I thought well why don't I try out this program in Newfoundland I'll just go and do a master's and it'll take me a year and I'll come back to Toronto after that and I can remember as a child reading the collected tales of the Brothers Grimm under my parents piano (laughs) shelf where it it lived (laughs) Um, but those stories had always really spoken to me and I didn't really know much of what folklore studies would be about, but I, I got there and I uh, immediately fell in love and I understood folklore is actually the way we make sense of our world around us. And so you can bring your interest to the study of folklore, whether it's online gaming or quilting or uh, oral storytelling. It, it, it's all there in folklore. So I was enchanted and I stayed in Newfoundland. and you know seven years later I had a PhD. I was married and had a baby. you know I only left because I had to because we we needed a job my husband was he was doing something more practical he was doing his PhD in biology when I met him And we kind of thought he's the one who's going to be able to get a proper job. So when he was offered one, we went for it.
2: (laughs) Uh, Did he appear as a knight on a white charger?
3: He did not. He walked into the ship pub in downtown St. John's and it's a small enough place that when he walked into the bar, I hadn't met him before, but I knew who he was.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you mentioned the ship and it's there that you noticed the Echoes in some of the folk ballads that were being performed there, and the Child's Ballads, a collection of 15th century English folklore stories, and a lot of the subject matter, particularly that of violence against women was still being echoed in these songs that you were hearing and these stories that were being told?
3: Yes, so I had a, it was actually a volunteer job. I was the ticket taker at the door for Folk Night, where people would come and perform folk music. Uh, And at the same time, I was studying folklore, and I had, as you said, just been introduced to the child ballads. And the child ballads are bloody, and there's a lot of violence against women, and they're sort of veiled as, as tales of, Uh, romance um, and love and finding that one person but the when you really listen to it and and think about the stories that's really not what's happening to the female uh, roles (laughs) The, the women in in these stories are you know in one case a woman is forced to marry her rapist. And that's sort of supposed to be the, the happy ending to the story. <laughs> so they were, they're really intriguing and disturbing. And then the uh, ballads being sung at the ship. Well, this sometimes they were the same ballads or sometimes they were newer ones. And at the same time, I was watching a lot of Law and Order SVU, which is a procedural crime drama about the particularly heinous crimes generally against the most vulnerable people, women and children. And I was seeing echoes of the child ballads in the the Law and Order episodes. I mean, I don't think they were, they were pulling from the headlines mostly, but, but the stories were sometimes very much the same. As in the story that I, I just mentioned from the child ballads, there was a Law and Order episode where a woman ends up, by some confusion, marrying the man who was her rapist. And I started to see a sort of a line being drawn throughout the hundreds of years of history.
2: You point out that a lot of these fairy tales were women's stories which were collected together, often by men, such as the Brothers Grimm. Um, cautionary tales for women. They they contain warnings for women. And not only are they echoes of those women's voices, but they they echo down through time as warnings. Women still need to be wary of going outside, wary of strangers who might offer a bargain that seems too good to be true
3: well a law and order um svu watching those episodes as a woman living alone i was watching and learning you know okay what what not to do how Mm. how to walk home alone um and with the child ballads it's really interesting because women never really find a way to to fully succeed in the child ballads but there are things to be learned from them about how to live and who to avoid and they often worked as cautionary tales these women were sending coded messages to the listeners in the audience the young women who would have been listening in the audience and i thought that was really interesting and beautiful and and ways of you know if they overtly said anything that could get them into trouble. That could be dangerous for them. But there are ways of getting these messages across through stories that um, can be coded, but but can be understood by the the intended recipient. And also, actually, to go back to something you mentioned before, that that a lot of the the folk tales that we know, so the Brothers Grimm or Perrault, the
2: man who compiled the Mother Goose stories. Oh yes,
3: sorry, the Mother Goose stories. Um, These were collected from women, but published under the names of the editors who were men. And so without a a sort of deeper understanding of folklore, we kind of just assume that these stories were either, (laughs) you know, written (laughs) by these men or, you know, they belong to them in some way. But the sources of of these tales are, are often women, unnamed women.
2: Now, you identify 31 main plot points common to most fairy tales. The first of these is usually that the protagonist undertakes a long journey to a far-off place, which is pretty much exactly what you did for your research project when you moved to a small outboard community on the east coast of Newfoundland. And it all sounds very idyllic. My time in in
3: the Newfoundland outport was, I have to say, one of the best experiences of my life (laughs) Uh, my husband and I we weren't actually married at the time we got married during my field work at about two months in to our time there where we were living in a small outport with about a settlement really of maybe 30 houses at most although only half of the people would have been there full-time um, yeah, and we decided this is a beautiful spot. Let's just get married here, which we did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that should be the fairy tale ending. But actually, you had a well life changing event happen to you there, which could have been taken straight from the pages of a Grimm's fairy tale when you had to rush yourself to hospital because you were pregnant and you were bleeding
3: you know, it was about a almost a three hour drive from where we live to uh, the closest hospital. But my husband was away. And yeah, I I was bleeding. And I had already been to this hospital once because I'd had some other problems. And he, the doctor there was so lovely. He really was. <laughs> he was just like this charismatic, really nice guy. But he prescribed these antibiotics the first time and I read the fine print and it said well it'll cause bone deformity in a growing fetus so someone who's pregnant should never take this and so I wasn't thinking he was maybe the best doctor on earth but he was the only doctor available to me and so I went to that hospital and he told me that the baby hadn't grown since the last time I'd been there which is actually impossible because the heart rate was fine but I you know what do you know Anyhow, I, I took his word for it, and he uh, admit me for overnight supervision, and I had gone to bed, and there was, I didn't have an, a neighbor, I was in the hospital room alone in this small town, and I heard, there was a sort of commotion going on, and I realized that I had um, been given a neighbor sometime in the middle of the night, and that she was in distress, and I could tell she was there with her sister, and I could hear them talking about a, a large amount of blood, I could hear clattering. I had pulled I had pulled the curtain around so I couldn't see anything. I could just hear it as it was like a a very disturbing radio play. And I could hear her speaking to the doctor, the nice doctor, who prescribed the weird antibiotics. <laughs> and uh, he was telling her that he was going to have to give her a hysterectomy. And I could hear her sister getting very distressing. Saying, you know, this is not what she came in for. What do you mean? And he said, well, there's just too much blood. We can't stop it. That's what's going to have to happen. And it was really dramatic. And then they were wheeled out of the room. And at that point I got up just to check out what was happening. And there was this giant pool of blood on the floor that I had to wheel my IV around. And I thought, I think this is a warning. Mm. <laughs> and when I woke up, there was no blood, there was nothing. There, were, there was no sign of these women. I don't know what happened to her in the end. I I know nothing. And when I phoned my mother, she said she thought I must have imagined that her <laughs> hallucinated it out of stress, which I don't believe. I think they really were there. But at the same time, I kind of wondered, like, are they banshees? Are they people here to, <laughs> to give me a warning? Like, you know what, you got to get out of here because this person doesn't know what they're doing and so i i called my gynecologist in st johns i called my husband uh, and and we got out of there and they weren't happy about it but i was very relieved and actually everything turned out to be fine with the pregnancy <laughs> so so it's a good thing that i left before any interventions happened
2: <laughs> well exactly and and actually the importance of this story is not whether it is true or dreamt it's actually that it was life-changing. So its veracity doesn't really matter one way or another. Uh,
3: that That's exactly it. And that's really the way a folklorist approaches any kind of interview with somebody who is going to tell them a story. You know, you can't approach someone who has a strong belief in fairies and say, oh, well, I don't really believe that kind of stuff, but I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. That's not going to work. If If the person, if the teller believes it's true, it's true. It's true to them. And that's enough. That's all you need. Well,
2: happily, your daughter did survive, as has her little brother. And they both appear in quite a few of the essays in Ordinary Wonder Tales. And in A Child Unwittingly Promised, we discover that your daughter has albinism and is legally blind, and that this Led you to do something that you might not otherwise have done, and undergo an amniocentesis.
3: Yes, and it's interesting. I, I I look back on that now because my son's eight now, and I think about that choice, and it is very folkloric <laughs> in that sort of situation where you can have this knowledge that you're so keen on, or it might not be knowledge in folklore, maybe it's a prize, maybe it's, you know, but, but there's, you've got to give something up Mm. in order to get there. And I really wanted that knowledge. And the knowledge wasn't going to change the outcome. For me, I just wanted to know, I wanted to be prepared and, and, and to know in advance, because now we have all these medical advancements that allow us to know. And I don't know if that's actually such a good thing, truthfully, but but we do, we have it and it was available to me. And ultimately I was going to take that small risk, but still a risk of miscarrying in order to get the knowledge. But you know, knowing what I do now, my eight-year-old son, my beloved boy, <laughs> I just, I think, oh my God, why would I have ever taken that chance? Because it didn't matter to me. And actually when we found out that he was a carrier, but didn't have it before he was born, because I took that chance, I felt, um... I don't want to use the word disappointed, but there was something in me that, that hurt a little bit because I'd only known, you know, this beautiful child with her beautiful white hair and your light skin and light blue eyes. And I had imagined a, a sibling that would be just like her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I had to kind of allow that child that I had imagined. I had to say goodbye to that child and, and embrace the child that, you know, my son was going to be. And it was, kind of painful. You approach
2: the quandary that you faced in a fascinating way because you tell a dual narrative. You tell the story of the decision to have the amniocentesis with a version of The Maiden's Tale, which is a survival tale. And by telling those two in parallel, you are able to draw solace and and strength from an ancient story and proceed with your your own narrative in many ways that's the key to understanding this collection of essays
3: i think i think that's the great power of of these ancient stories is that you can fit your narrative into it. You can go to these stories and and relate them to your life in, in whatever way you know. We, we all bring our own background to the stories that we read, and I mentioned that in that essay in terms of you know what we see in our our heads when we read. None of us are ever reading the same book. <laughs> mm. So um, when I begin to tell the fairy tale version of that story, that it's interwoven into child unwittingly. I mentioned where it's set in my head when I think about this story or when I read it and when I was writing it and so I could see um, an old mill that once belonged to my great uncle and that had been also um, his daughter had run an antique shop out of it at one point and and now it's abandoned and all three of those iterations of that mill were incorporated into the fairy tale in my mind and I don't know why but that's just the way it happens in, in my head and I suspect it's the same for many people and folklore doesn't have all those little details and nuances that you might get if you're reading a novel where you get you know the the writer's filling that in for you as much as possible but mm-hmm. um with folklore there's so little of that that you really can apply it to any story and actually along those lines the title of this essay child unwittingly promised is from something called the folklore motif index and these are basically the granular elements of world folk tales and they can be as small as like The sun rose or water turns to solid or man loses time when listening to birdsong. And so they they appear in stories across cultures and throughout time. And Child Unwittingly Promised is one of the subheadings in um, the Folklore Motif Index, which is 1,200 pages long. (laughs) (laughs) And there are so many stories where you find that someone has unwittingly promised their, their child away. Uh, often to the devil, but to, to some evil source, and it wasn't intentional. But it was still through some element of greed, generally, that's been introduced. And in my story, I I signed a document that that said that I would change the management of my pregnancy if the test came back positive for albinism, and I intended to do no such thing. But for whatever reason, I find this quite upsetting, and I hope it's been changed since, but the government of British Columbia, they didn't want to fund tests where the parents were seeking just information only. They only wanted to fund tests where the parent would have to uh, terminate the pregnancy. Um, and, and the geneticists sort of laughed about it and said, oh, don't worry, they won't hold you to it. But that stuck in my head. And I signed it because I wanted that information. So I, you know, I wanted it, I took a risk with the miscarriage, but I also signed a document that basically said I would give away my child and uh Anyhow, that uh, that was the initial spark of what made me think of The uh, Child Unwittingly Promised and, and how it connected to my story. And then I started writing these two stories in tandem. And I remember it was actually, you know, deep in the horrible depths of the pandemic when my children were, oh, homeschooled, so awful. <laughs> <laughs> I was writing this story and it was Uh, It is quite a grim story in many ways, but it was just bringing me such joy to write this fairy tale um, and then parallel it with my own story. And I can remember sitting at the kitchen table and thinking, oh, I hope that kindergarten yoga class lasts just a little bit longer so I can see what happens next.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I think the way in which you and, and all of us populate these folkloric tales that have fed into everybody's lives. They are, they are universal. There are variations around the world. But the way that we are able to populate them with our own imagery, with our own experiences, it is also empowering. It gives us some agency over the narrative of our life. And that makes us better able to deal with new, unexpected and unpleasant experiences. And you use a wonderful expression, for every malady of the human psyche, there is a folk tale. And at no time did we need that more than during the pandemic, which is something we will come to discuss after the break.
1: Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111.
2: Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week my guest is Emily Urquhart, folklorist, journalist and author of Ordinary Wonder Tales. Emily, just before the break, we were talking about how during the pandemic, your study of folklore really took on a special significance, not least, I suppose, because there are so many plague myths contained within folklore. And by recognising the parallels, we can feel empowered and also realise that the human race has gone through such things before and survived.
3: Yes, like everybody during the pandemic, I was doing a lot of doom scrolling.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: I don't think that says anything unusual about me. <laughs> I feel like a lot of us were doing this. But um, it occurred to me, I thought, well, you know what, I, I know that there are plague legends, specific plague legends, really mostly about the Black Death, which is the, you know, the worst plague in the history of Europe. Um, but some were were about cholera or or flu. And so I started doing a different kind of doom scrolling a kind of mythological doom scrolling where I started looking at these much much older stories and they were often supernatural nature but there were a lot of parallels one of the uh, parallels I saw was that people were trying to look at where this plague came from and ways of keeping it out and and Mm. and really othering in the same way that I think the you know the west was very much there was a lot of uh, really, terrible racism against people, of Asian descent in North America, keeping people out, closing borders, all that sort of stuff and that and that appeared in, in the legends, you know there was one with a ship that came from far away. It, it arrived, and there were no people on it because they'd all died. But the villagers went on to the ship anyhow, and they took all the belongings, and then it turned out everything was tainted because these people who came from away had said this terrible plague, and so everyone in the village dies. Um, There were also parallels between the most vulnerable populations in every culture bearing the brunt of a plague, so in another plague legend there was a messenger for the king, and he was told to go out to the rural areas where the poor people live with this um, special delivery for them. And the special delivery was cholera. Ultimately, we find out that the the king felt there were too many poor people out there. And so the messenger should go deliver some cholera there to just thin out their numbers. (laughs) And, uh, you know, of course, during our own present modern day plague, it was nothing so overt as that, but you could imagine a story being told about who is bearing the brunt and why and how. I think you could follow a very similar line.
2: And you also found parallels with friend of a friend stories and rumours circulating on the internet. If we eat zinc tablets, then We will be safe. If we drink warm water, it'll flush the virus down into our stomachs rather than allow it to go into our lungs. And those kind of things that we we cleave to in the hope that the secret uh, that will stop us from contracting the plague. And also some of the memes that we're celebrating. I was thinking particularly about the Japanese seer myth.
3: Yes, the Amabi tale It's a story from Japan from um, hundreds of years ago. And it it is about this creature who is sort of uh, half fish, half mermaid, half bird in an old drawing of it that was found. And she came and, and said, there was a terrible plague coming, but if you showed her image widely, then you could maybe stave off this plague and people picked that up and started showing the Amabi image all over the internet. There were posters in Japan. People were making little Amabi dolls. They were putting her on puff pastries. And this is just stuff I was seeing on the internet. But when I saw it, I thought, oh, interesting. Maybe I should paint one (laughs) with my children. Everything was turned into a homeschooling activity. (laughs) and i put it on our front door <laughs> cuz i thought well maybe this will work i don't know let's try it uh but but my kids found it really embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> everyone else had those signs that were you know thank you public service workers that had rainbows and you know hearts and stuff on it and and we had put this almost human sized creature that was half fish and half bird on our front. Desk. So it didn't stay there for very long. And I wasn't sure it was enough time for it to really be successful at warding off the plague from our house. Um, ultimately, we eventually did all get COVID. So, you know, but not for a while. <laughs> so maybe, she, maybe a bit of her magic
2: worked. And <laughs> I think we can hear from the way you are telling that story. These stories do become part of our own folklore. I've heard so many people post-pandemic go, gosh, that all seems like a bit of a fever dream. It all seems a little bit fantastical. And, And this is how we process our life stories. We turn them into something a little bit more magical or a little bit more phantasmagorical than they actually seemed at the time. And you identify that really storytelling occupies that, Liminal space between reality and fantasy.
3: It it absolutely does, and it doesn't have to be a supernatural story to occupy that space either. I think the stories that we tell they always change a little bit with each telling, both in our memory and in mm. the way that we tell it. And so, um, I mentioned earlier that I I had worked as a fact checker, and I I did that for for years, which is interesting because I began to understand facts as as different than I had before. As a young journalist, I sort of felt like, oh, yeah, you can fact check anything. Well, were the curtains red or were they yellow? They were red? Absolutely. Okay. So that's a fact. But when you're really, really getting into the depths of someone's memories, that fact checking um, becomes uh, sometimes impossible. And I think the supernatural and and facts I, sometimes i think they are far closer together and even how we understand our lives and how we retell them in, in stories it, it is always changing just a little and and sometimes we do include magic in these stories and sometimes we include what we believe are facts which are in turn a fiction and and i'm not sure that we have a whole lot of control over that as much as we like to think we do.
2: (laughs) Indeed. And it's something that you explore further in the final two chapters of Ordinary Wonder Tales, which deal with your father's dementia. This sense that memory is a liminal space where we are constantly reimagining and reassessing the events of our lives.
3: Dementia is a is a great example of that. But also um, the way people treat people with dementia or how they fear dementia or the taboo about dementia, where as humans, we, we like to think that we're in control and that we absolutely know what the difference is between fact and, and fiction and between imagination and, and reality. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, with my father's dementia, he existed in in two worlds, I felt that as his disease progressed, he Mm -hmm. existed in the world with us, with his family and, and with reality. And then he existed in a kind of a parallel world. And as an artist, I kind of imagined that parallel world to be more akin to what he saw in his mind when he created his artwork. And that was never touchable. None of us could ever go there. My father was a darling man. And he was just, everyone loved him. He was a special person. And so I don't want to make it sound like he was sort of <laughs> aloof or always sort of, you know, in the clouds, but he did have this part of him is this deep well of imagination that was just only his. And, and none of us were ever going to enter that that area. And so with dementia, there was another parallel universe that he was entering and coming in and out of and, and living in at the same time as he was living in the present with the rest of us. And in some ways, it wasn't all that different from the way he had lived mm-hmm. his life as an artist. Um, sometimes the two would, would bleed together a little more, um, as in what I wrote about in the opening of that essay was that he had uh, encountered his high school girlfriend when he had gone into one of these parallel universes, which is really just a, a long sort of remembering. And that's another thing about dementia is that we always say, oh, it's about forgetting. But for my dad and I think for many people it's actually quite a lot of remembering and particularly about your younger years and your childhood and so my father had remembered at some point his his high school girlfriend and and he had sort of tripped there because it was such a powerful memory for him that he felt that he'd seen her and that they'd got back together and he had to communicate that to my mother and my mother who you know from the very beginning, which you can tell from the first story where she was uh, accepting about me seeing a ghost. She wasn't going to say that didn't happen. And she mm. never said that to my dad either about any any of the sort of hallucinations that he might have. She would just say, well, you know, I can't see it, but but you can see it and, and really generous that way. And I think that's a great way of approaching um, those kinds of situations in dementia.
2: Yes, and you write something rather lovely about him that he taught you that the world could be both real and imaginary and that it's important not just to focus on what is in front of you but to look beyond your perceptions. And there's that sense that if we dismiss our imagination, we'd live in a very monochrome world. Imagination is the basis of creativity.
3: I think if you open yourself up to some of the more imagined or or magical aspects of basically what can be taking place in in your own mind. (laughs)
1: Mm. I
3: think it's a lot about daydreaming, you know, for my dad, the way he wandered through the universe was, was different because he was an artist and I guess it was his way of seeing. Well, that's, that's reality, but he's also looking at something and he's imagining how it can be created and and uh, morphed into something else and I think that is a really magical way of walking through the world, and I think writers do that as well. you know you're sitting on a bus and you overhear a snippet of conversation, and you think that's interesting, well, where's the story for that and and maybe it it brings a character to mind for you that could be saying that very same thing and and you begin to explore the story behind it and it um it can certainly. Uh, carry you through your days in a way that is actually quite magical, but also just really compelling and interesting and engaging. <laughs> um, I, I don't think you have to be an artist or or a writer to to live this way. I just am using those as examples.
2: <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about your father, the, the artist, Tony Urquhart. Um, we should also mention that your mother is Jane Urquhart, the, the novelist. So she too occupies a world of storytelling and imagination and creativity and and creates her own worlds on the page.
3: Absolutely. You know, it's so interesting having grown up with an artist and an author as parents. With my dad, he could occupy that other world, but also be in the same physical space as me. So in some ways I could kind of almost watch him walk into his creative space in his head (laughs) because I could watch him paint. But with my mother, and I know this as a writer as well, it's not the same I mean I I often caught her daydreaming when I thought she was listening to one of my long probably boring childish stories when, (laughs) when I was younger and she probably was thinking about a character but but for her she would have to disappear into a room upstairs in our home and that was where she would write and it wasn't a space that I could occupy at the same time as her because it just isn't possible and and I feel this way with my own children too you know as I mentioned before during the homeschooling. And I think, oh, please let that video last for another five minutes so I can keep writing because once they're in the space with me, that magic is broken. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, but I, of course, you know, you can, you can witness the the tangible product that comes of, of the imagination of a writer like my mother. Of course, I, c- I can read her books and understand
2: where she was, where she disappeared to. Now, we've talked about your your children as well. And as we've mentioned, your, your daughter has albinism and she's legally blind. And I know it was extremely important for you that Ordinary Wonder Tales should be recorded as an audio book so that... Those of us who can't see to read could have access to it. But I get the impression from certain hints that you've dropped in the book itself that the whole family is rather addicted to audiobooks as well.
3: (laughs) Oh, yes, we are. (laughs) (laughs) So when my daughter was born, uh, you know, we had the whole genetic uh, situation. You know, you have to sit down and Mm. meet with people and they tell you things that can come across sounding quite Dire, I have to say, and one of the things that I was told is that my daughter wouldn't read, and mm. I think it could have been more nuanced than that. But for me, I think, oh my gosh, reading is really the only true thing I'm good at. <laughs> yeah. It's really it is it is my ultimate joy in life, and I just can't imagine having a child who would be unable to read. And so I very quickly worked out that that was untrue. Yeah, because. You don't need to sight read to read, and um, and then at the same time, because I had just had a baby. I am a really voracious reader and I wasn't able to read the way I I used to. I couldn't even hold the books. My hands always seemed to be doing something for this baby. And so I turned to audiobooks thinking about my daughter and how she would read, but also just out of convenience. And I was immediately hooked. And I, I mean, as a folklorist, I have to say the novel is relatively new form. Our stories were oral for far longer than we've been writing them down. And so this is really just a natural storytelling form. Uh, and and when you have a a good narrator, which now that there's been a real audiobook boom, the narrators generally are quite good. It it's just like a kind of magic having somebody read you a story. So I listen almost more than I sight read. Um, yeah, we are big audiobook listeners. My daughter is a huge audiobook listener. She has access to the SELA library, which is brilliant and um, really varied. And we basically can always find the books that she's looking for. And the narrators are excellent as well. They're volunteer narrators. So she listens to so many, many audiobooks. She also sight reads using a Kobo and sets the um, the font size quite large. And then my son is also a big audiobook listener. He always, always, always has an audiobook on the go. And my husband is too. And so sometimes our house (laughs) will be a different audiobook going in every room. And it's a little overwhelming, but that's who we are.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm wondering if any of the three books of your life that you're going to tell us about were audiobooks. So without further ado, Emily... Could I ask you whether there is a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author?
3: Oh, that's an interesting question. When I was uh, in grade 11, so I was about 16, I had a boyfriend at the time who was in a higher grade and they had been assigned the lives of girls and women to read in their English class. And I knew who Alice Monroe was, but I hadn't read her yet. And I looked at the cover and it seemed appealing. And of course, the title, The Lives of Girls and Women, also appealing. So I started to read it, but uh, I couldn't put it down. And I know people are always saying that in blurbs and whatnot, but I really couldn't put it down. I didn't want to be separated from Dell for a single minute in my life. I read it through my math class (laughs) and... I I have a, a visual in my head of of where I sat, which was kind of in the middle and near the back. And it was one of those desks that was kind of open and you, but had a top on it. So you kind of position the book just so, so that the math teacher, who I think didn't care anyhow, truthfully, uh, couldn't see what I was doing. And that way I didn't have to be separated from Dell, the main character in her story for, for, for too long. But um, as you know, Alice Munro has, quite a a large body of work so once I finished that I just kept on going (laughs) I I read Alice Munro all the way through grade 11 math and I failed grade 11 math
2: (laughs) (laughs) well then and is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread
3: I'm going to choose a book that I've read recently and again this is short stories I do like the short story form um the Argentinian author Samantha Schweblin, she her work I just discovered this year, and I was teaching, so I went particularly to her short stories. I thought my students might be interested, but then I was the one who became deeply interested they're- they're fantastical, they're very much like folklore in the way that the the protagonists don't really get a huge backstory. The tale's pretty linear it starts where it starts, and it's all contained within within that what well, there's no flashbacks or or um, you know, you don't see into the future, you just get what's happening to the characters at that moment in time. And they're quite short, but they are so complex and interesting and strange. You know, honestly, it's one of the strangest books I've ever read. So it's called A Mouthful of Birds is the short story collection by Samantha Schweblin that um, I would like to to curl up with that again.
2: And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to the listeners?
3: Yes. Okay. So the only concern I have is that I'm going to say the author's name incorrectly, but um, the book is called A Ghost in the Throat and it's by an Irish author. And I think it's Doreen Nigrofa or Nigrifa. She's a poet that comes through in the writing. I always say, I've said this to my students as well, that the poets are really always going to to create the most beautiful prose because they're the ones who care so deeply about language and that is what happens in this book and sort of the, the the title the a ghost in the throat she becomes it's a non-fiction work it's a memoir but it's very poetic and she becomes obsessed with the Irish poet Eileen Dove and her life and her work and translating her work and that's kind of the center of the tale but it's the the story of her life around it it's the story of of a stay-at-home mom who has many children. Um, a, 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 it's a story of childbirth. It's a story of medical situations happening to do with childbirth and and around the early stages of of a baby being born into the world and breastfeeding and you know all the all the aspects of of motherhood. Uh, the the playground where she's imagining um, the life of this poet and and what she might write about it and uh, it, it's just a beautiful weaving together of. An ancient story and a modern story, and it 's really unlike anything i 've ever read before and Of course, as I said before, you know she 's a poet, and her language is just just stunning and interesting and surprising so um, that 's a it 's a beautiful book it 's won a lot of awards it 's got a lot of attention, and it 's all it 's all rightly deserved
2: well Emily Urquhart, thank you for three wonderful recommendations and for sharing your obvious passion for literature and so many insights into your passion for folklore it's been a real pleasure to talk to you
3: thank you red it's been such a pleasure speaking with you as well
2: it's time to turn the page on this edition of my life in books thanks again to my guest emily urquhart and the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to leaf for our back catalogue or drop us a line, here's how.
1: Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads and don't forget you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for my life in books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use catch you next time